It's almost universal. Whether it's two wheels, four wheels, 18 wheels, no wheels. So many of us have a special memory involving a vehicle or a story about a car we've loved. Even if you can't tell a crankshaft from a drive shaft, I want to hear the story of the vehicle that moved you. I'm Blake Jackson, and this is Autobiography. Next guest on the Autobiography podcast, one of my favorite bands of all time is The Trues. And I couldn't be more excited to have John Angus McDonald from The Trues here to join us. So, John Angus, please tell us about the vehicle that moved you. Oh, the first vehicle that moved us would have been our, our first tour van. Um, it was a Dodge Ram. <laughs> Gonna pump the brakes for a sec and tell you about the Dodge Ram van. Well, what can you say about the Dodge Ram van? It's it's dependable. It's been around forever, and and they tend to run forever. People love them. That's okay. Sometimes it's okay to be ordinary. You know, they started in 1970 with the Dodge Ram van, and uh, it's been around ever since. You know, in 1976 they came out with the 15 passenger Dodge Ram van, which made it very popular with church groups. Now here's the thing, instead of a frame, they used a unibody, so the Dodge uh, got better mileage than the other vans out there. But because it was a unibody, it also vibrated like crazy, which maybe was another reason why it was popular with, with church groups. Now, hey, hey, you remember the A-Team van? Yeah, well, that was a GMC, but uh, Dodge did come out with the street van package. And what was the street van package? Well, just wood grain all over everything. And hey, did you know in the 70s you could actually right away and, and become a member of the fan club? It was the, called the, uh, the Dodge Van Clan. You know, one of those 15, 12 passenger thingies. Yeah. Our parents, this is very generous, and this is a, a message to all parents out there who have kids that want to follow their dream. They bought us the secondhand thing because they knew, they could tell we were serious. We were just fresh out of high school and we wanted to cross the country and do a tour. And they said, well, our contribution will be, we'll buy you this secondhand van. We took two seats out of the back and built a bed that would fit over our gear. So um, Jack and I just like, you know, built this bed out of like two by fours and plywood, threw some mattresses on it. Uh, the amps could all fit underneath it, and you could sleep two on that thing, and then one person would sleep on the passenger bench, and then one person would sleep on the fr two front seats with a cooler in between. Yeah. That was the worst seat, but that was the, that was the fourth place to sleep. So the four of us would uh, – that's how we toured. Our first cross-Canada tour was just like really slumming it in the van, uh, trying to find a safe neighborhood and sleeping in it. Um, and, but it was – you know – the more years that pass, I mean, I, I kind of look on those years pretty fondly now because it was just such a, a wild adventure. You know? But now the uh, the prospect of like four grown men sleeping in a, a van, it's, it's just one of those things at the time and a place. I, I, I would do it at 19 and I probably, I don't think I would ever do it again, but, but it was a fond memory while it lasted. What was the biggest shocker in the music industry for you? I mean, all of it's pretty shocking. It's like a... What did Hunter say about the narrow corridor where like pimps and thieves run free and good men die like dogs? And then there's a bad side. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know that that I'm I'm paraphrasing, but you know I mean you come to realize a lot of that's true. I mean, look, the sanest people in the industry are the musicians, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Um, you know, they're the ones that sort of have at least the good ones. They have their sort of eyes wide open about the whole thing. And then there's a lot of people that what they're trying to get their hands in in your pocket so what's a must-have as far as food and as far as provisions when you're out there 
good coffee is so huge on our bus. It always has been, um, you know, start the day off right kind of thing. Yeah. Usually there's like way more booze than we could even ever drink. And even in our heyday, you know, of, of drinking, we probably could never get through all the booze because you're just collecting rider as you go. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of that. But uh, I think, you know, uh, food wise, you just got to stick with like, you know, I'm, I'm Health, like as healthy as you can find because there's yeah. so many options to eat like crap on the road you got you got to counterbalance that in some in some ways get some fruit on there get some healthier stuff on there because your body will thank you on week three you know yeah you and i are of the same vintage and i like to turn in early i don't have the energy but i mean you're playing shows and you're doing all kinds of things how do you keep your energy level up it's honestly, it's a rhythm. I mean, it's going to be a bit of a learning curve getting back into it because I've had two years of being, a, you know, basically a stay-at-home dad. Um, you know, I've got two young kids. That's a different kind of tired. Yeah. Um, but you know, the, the road thing is just, a, it's just, it's a rhythm you you got to find. You know, I find like once I'm on that rhythm, I find it really hard to get home, and then wake up at six again. That's like that to me is brutally punishing. But once I'm in the road rhythm, I, I don't. It's not too bad. I mean, you get such a charge out of uh, out of your audience every night that you don't even realize how tired you are sometimes until you step off deck and then you, you feel that like you got hit by a bus. Uh, and then you just gotta like recover best you can, man. Like re- rehydrate, you know. Try to wind down without getting too inebriated, and, and then do it all over the next day. Have any of those artists, like uh, I know you've played on the same bill as Aerosmith, and on and on. Have any of those artists? come to you and, and offered advice or, or offered some sort of guidance? Uh, not too much by way of advice. We've had some nice compliments paid, you know, people that, that saw the show and really enjoyed it and, and paid us a compliment or two. Um, I mean, nobody's really sat down and said, here's how you do it, son, or anything like that. Um, you know, I, I do recall one night being on tour uh, with Robert Plant and it being in the Saddle Dome or, or one of those big rinks out west. And, and Robert was... Uh, having voice trouble so he was looking around for like right before he went on he's like i need to find me some whiskey and i remember uh, thinking okay that there's a little tip I now i know whiskey can get you through a rough night if you're a legendary rock god um so uh, you know maybe you learn a few things here and there through through osmosis i've learned that keith richards can smoke anywhere he likes yeah. that there's no non-smoking laws when it comes to to meeting keith richards but nobody's really sat me down and, and sort of like i mean i guess you know being fully honest, like early on, Gordy Johnson was like the first guy that really discovered us. And I mean, most people, everybody knows who Gordy is, especially out in Red Deer in Alberta. Yeah. Um, he was a guy who did offer us some pretty concrete advice and help early on. Like he was our first producer, sort of mentor, and he taught us a lot about how to do it right and, you know, how to sound good in the studio and, and live tricks that can really turn your show. Uh, into a much better thing. Um, so, I mean, yeah, like he, he d- totally gave us some great tips early on that we, you know, are still useful and valid. So John Angus McDonald from The Trues, we're looking forward to seeing you and we're looking forward to hearing lots more from you. Well, thanks for having me on the show, man. Very cool. There's John Angus McDonald from The Trues, their album, Wander is out now and they're wandering all over Canada with a a tour that may come to your town soon and you better hope so one of the best bands ever and we'll post all the socials uh, at my link as well I'm Blake Jackson thanks for hanging out if you have a story let me know Um, I'd love to have you on the podcast as well and it's time for another one
Next guest on the Autobiography Podcast. He actually hosts my son's favorite show. Uh, it's Making Fun on Netflix. We love it. We all love that one. Um, but researching about Jimmy Duresta, he's a maker. He's a fabricator. He's a producer. He's an author. He's a designer. He's an artist. He's, he's good at pretty much everything. So uh, very excited to have Jimmy Duresta here. Please, Jimmy, tell us about the vehicle that moved you. Oh, thank you very much. As a kid, I was always into Cadillacs. I loved Cadillacs. And I remember my dad said, I got a surprise for you because he knew I liked Cadillacs. And I went over to his house and he had a cream puff, low miles, like I say, like 40,000 miles. It was a 1978 Cadillac. Uh, Coupe de Ville. All right, all right. Stopping to tell you a little bit about the Cadillac Coupe de Ville. Over eight generations from 1949 to 2005, it was the pinnacle of stylish luxury for the men about town. Now, the name Coupe de Ville comes from the old French uh, carriage building terminology. Coupe means to cut, and de Ville means the town. So I assume Coupe de Ville means to cut the town to cut through the town it's a small coupe for driving around town now the coupe de ville was not small but eh, what are you gonna do now the accoutrement that could be had in the early days included a telephone in the glove box a vanity case and just in case a secretarial notepad embedded in the rear armrests uh, we had uh, saddle leather saddle leather a saddle turno top and and like cream puff yellow with a chrome strip that went down the, the nose of the hood, yeah. went from like the tail all the way like under the rearview mirrors down to the nose. Absolutely never saw that on any other Cadillac. I don't know what that detail was, but the car was perfect. He bought it from a doctor that never used it. <clears throat> and uh, he always said he was going to give it to me. But one day he called me about a year later and said, I got, a, I got good news and bad news. I go, what? He goes, the car is yours. He goes, but I just got rear-ended at a stop sign and it's destroyed. <laughs> oh, so I got it from him, yeah. and uh, I bought a, a donor car, and I cut off the rear quarter. The whole rear passenger quarter was destroyed. Had the frame straightened out, and I basically did a full Frankenstein job. I had the rear quarter redone. You know, it was a hard time getting the roof back in order to cut the quarter off and weld it. So it just kind of became a knockaround car. I ended up giving it away, unfortunately. But it was a car that I learned on. Yeah, how to cut off and repair a quarter panel, like completely, like all around the trunk seams and everything it was. It was a tremendous amount of work for someone that had never done anything. My very first car was a, a Volkswagen Bug. Yeah, I got a 1966 Volkswagen Bug for 100 bucks, and uh, I drove that around a little bit till the clutch went. Then I ended up selling it um, for like 50 bucks <laughs> in high school. Yeah, and then um, I got a Toyota, a Datsun, a Datsun pickup truck. Yeah, it was a Datsun, a Datsun pickup truck. Uh, I actually never ever drove that. I never got a chance to drive it. I was Restoring it in my driveway, and somebody offered to buy it, so I ended up flipping it. And you mentioned working on the Cadillac. I'm assuming you didn't have a body shop do that for you. I'm, I'm assuming you took that work on yourself. I, I was just an overly ambitious kid. Like I was the type of kid, and I still am. When I see a junker in a driveway, I just go, "Oh wow, look at that!" And, you know, everybody around me is like, "Are you crazy? The thing is a giant pile of crap." I remember seeing a '66 convertible Cadillac in the back of some driveway out in the, in Queens. And I fell in love with it. And uh, that was, I mean, that was when I really fell in love with like 60, 65, 66, and then 67 and 68, you know, those two different body styles. And 
I remember uh, going in there, pulling it out, and everybody that went to look at it with me said, you're crazy. This car is way beyond your capabilities. Just leave it. Just leave it. Just leave it. Wait till you get a better one. <laughs> and uh, ultimately, when I turned 30 years old as a gift to myself, I bought a 1976 Eldorado uh, convertible with 1,000 miles on it from new car cost me $20,000 and that was my that was my dream car until I went broke <laughs> in 2001 so I had that car from 97 till 2000 and the summer of 2004 is when I finally had to sell that car for money so I I put about 4,000 5,000 miles on it so when I sold it it had about just around 6,000 miles on it when I sold it to a friend who still has it and he recently told me he would sell it back to me for 20,000 if I wanted it so uh-huh. it's it's a, it's a consideration. Now, here I am. I'm 55, so it's, I don't know what the math is, 25 years later. So I have the opportunity to get that car back. That sounds like a really good friend. Yeah, yeah. Well, he bought it. To, he's, he's a friend of mine. He's very wealthy, and he loves toys. Yeah. So he always said to me, he's much older than me. He was one of my mentors in the toy manufacturing business. And when I first bought it, he's like, I love that car. If you ever sell it, you got to tell me first. And so when I was broke, he was the first phone number I called, and he says, I'll take it. And then he goes, if you ever want it back, he goes, if I'm not doing anything with it, I'll sell it back to you. And so now here it is 25 years later, and I'm considering it. <laughs> I just got nowhere to put it. So all my garages are filled up with other projects. It has to go inside. That's the problem. Now, the reason I, I wanted to phone you for an automotive podcast, we were watching Making Fun, again, on Netflix, my kid's favorite show. And I honestly, like, I didn't know your name yet, and I didn't know your history, right. but I noticed a shot. Right of this Chevy truck outside of your workshop and on the back on the yeah. tailgate instead of Chev or GMC it said Duresta and I thought like I'm a car guy but I thought yeah. is there some sort of special edition I didn't know about why does it say that <laughs> That's great that's good to know Well years ago uh when I first got uh my CNC machine in 2013 I was, I've always been involved in manufacturing. So I was always very intrigued with being able to do little bits of manufacturing on my own. Um, I was always going to China for injection molding and cutting and sewing and, and heat sealing for pool inflatables and injection molding. And, uh, when I was, uh, when I first got my CNC machine, I was like, Oh, I could make dyes. I can make a positive and a negative dye. And using my Harbor Freight press, I could make a letter in metal. And that's what I did. I made, and I always was intrigued. I'm also a font nerd, you know, I'm into graphic design. And um, I was interested in the uh, the font on the Chevy, the classic Chevy logo on the tailgate. And uh, so I said, it will be great. Cause I started, I'll go back a minute on YouTube. I started posting videos and right away, there were several other channels, which is 10, 12 years ago, like break.com and, couple of other like youtube wannabes and they would steal my videos you know or they claim that there was just uploaded taking my videos and even on youtube my videos would end up so my whole thing became just using my branded logo in everything whether it be just inherently in the video on my tools or even me making something interesting but making the logo and that was where that came from so i was like let me change the tailgate of the chevy truck to my logo but i'm showing a process and how anybody could do this and that's what i did i ended up stamping uh, my name out of uh, thin light gauge aluminum and then incorporating it kind of like body with body filler and resin into the tailgate. I cut out the Chevy logo to make the space. So it's in there kind of phony. It's not quite stamped in there the way uh, the Chevy logo is in like, you know, eight gauge metal. Thank you. I've, <laughs> since I saw that episode, it's been bugging me how you did that. So 
I'm thankful. Uh, yeah. I guess two-parter question here. I like to make stuff, uh, not to your skill level, of course, but even I'm inspired by watching your videos. Do you ever have people uh, saying, okay, I, I saw your videos and I wanted to start making things. I wanted to start learning how. If if people say that to you or if you hear that, is there a, a beginner toolkit or a, a beginner project that you like to recommend? Well, it's funny because ever since I was a young child, I was always exposed to my dad's workshop, which involved uh, radial arm saw, which is really kind of obsolete these days. Uh, very dangerous tool, but I grew up using a radial arm saw. I still have a few, but I never use them. But a radial arm saw and, and more specifically a band saw. So I grew up always using the bandsaw as a kid. So I solve all my problems with the bandsaw. And a lot of people call me like the bandsaw wizard or whatever. And because I can cut out fonts and I can cut out shapes and squares. And, you know, you do a couple of different, I could actually carve on the bandsaw blade. And so I always tell people as a beginner, if you want to get involved in a cheap tool, get yourself a used bandsaw. It's not too complicated to tune up to get working well. And you could do freeform shapes. You could follow a straight line and, and do more. Uh, you know, traditional woodworking shapes, but I find a bandsaw is pretty fun to play with and, and it's a good beginner tool. And, you know, all tools are easy to get injured on. You just have to be cautious and, you know, use common sense. Uh, you had a career as a toy maker back before, uh, back before everything else. And I was reading about your involvement with gurgle guts and I think I remember yeah. them from back in the day. Were there any uh, other, uh, any other toys? Guts? that you were involved with? Uh, I was involved in a very famous toy called the Sky Dancer. We mentioned it on the show. I was involved in the early product development of Sky Dancer. And it's a doll that flies from a little cradle you pull. So it was basically the, the big genius there. And, and I can't take credit for it. My buddies, Anthony and John Gentili, two brothers, came up with the idea. And they took a boy's toy and turned it into more of a girl's toy, which was a real genius move because it was just a little bit left to center. It wasn't too complicated. Engineering-wise, because they wanted the arms to fall down, it was interesting. Uh, but uh, they got some really skilled people once the product got picked up by a toy company. They got some really skilled people to take it on and did a really beautiful job with the final engineering. But I was involved in the early parts of that. And lots of little things, like one famous thing that we've done, and it's really a niche, niche, niche. There's 24-inch KISS action figures that are out there right now, and they're thousands of dollars. Me and my brother developed that whole product line, like looking at what Gene Simmons and those guys are wearing and deciding what era to, to, to emulate. We did three versions of 24-inch KISS action figure dolls. They were at retail for $200 each. What was it like working? I, I guess... I shouldn't say what was it like. Was Gene Simmons pretty hands-on with his product? My brother dealt with Gene Simmons. My brother said he was very curt and very uh, short and to the point. All business. He didn't have much time to deal with everybody. <laughs> yeah. I noticed on your Instagram, uh, I was perusing it before the interview. Are you currently working on a go-kart? Uh, I own a go-kart track here in East Durham, East Durham, New York. I bought the local go-kart track, really more just for commercial property. Uh, and... We haven't we haven't destroyed the racetrack yet. It gets covered with pine needles every winter. But uh, I, for July 4th weekend, we clean it up and get it ready, and we get any fans that want to show up with a go-kart. But we've done it now. This will be the third year in a row, but it's the first time that I am actually making a go-kart. Just because last year, this time we were making a TV show, I couldn't make a go-kart. So we just it was like we literally finished filming the episode the day before the racetrack event. And so I personally did not have anything other than the go-karts that were just kind of came with the building. 
nothing special, and they're all in disrepair. Yeah. Anyway, so this year I got my little coffin cart. It looks like a coffin. It looks huh. like a little Dracula coffin. I'm just having fun with it. I'm just taking a really non-serious stab at this, just having fun, um, you know, using all my machines at my disposal and my, my lathe, making collars for gears and stuff. And, and it's it's really... You don't know what you what you know until you need to be put to the test, and this is certainly putting me to the test in a good way. I'm really excited about the challenge. Well, something I've I've been trying to not hammer into my son, but but tell him about is resourcefulness, and just yeah. taking what you have and being ready to learn. So I, that's another big reason that I really love your show. You're just you're teaching yourselves how. No, no, no. I was going to say the funny thing was. When we were working on the show, the, the producers kept saying, hey, okay, so this kid wants to build a dinosaur. What do you think? I go, all right, we'll build a dinosaur. And he goes, well, what's the first step? I go, I'm not sure. He goes, what do you mean you don't know? I was like, I don't know. I don't know. We'll figure it out the day we start shooting. He goes, no, I need to know now. I'm like, this was like a month before. And I was like, no. I said, no, we're going to start. I don't know. I don't know. Once we know what materials are around me, I said, we'll figure it out then. I said, we'll start with plywood and two by fours. He's like, okay, what's the first step? I go, I don't know. I really don't know. He's like, what do you mean you don't know? I go, I don't know. I haven't thought about it. He's like, well, think about it now. I was like, no. I said, because anything I say now is going to change. I said, these ideas are very fluid. So they, after the first episode, they were a little bit more easygoing with me. But in the beginning, and quite frankly, you know, TV show people, TV, I love the guys I work with. Everybody was nice. But TV as a whole will quite literally drain you mentally and physically. Mm. And so I, I, we had a very deep negotiation about my fees. And I said, okay, so that's my talent fee and that's my rental fee. That's it. I said, you didn't give me a development fee. I said, I'll develop the product the day the show starts shooting. And they're like, you can't do that. I was like, then give me a development fee. I said, I have all my time is spent making YouTube videos in my other life. I was like, you want me to be on the design team as well? I said, give me another salary. And so that's why I basically designed everything in time, real time during the show. And I thought it was for more fun too. If everything was figured out, it wouldn't be quite as challenging. We're learning about negotiation, too. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Well, when it comes to TV, you know, it, it, when TV now, it's a very, you know, they really, really, really press you difficult, hard for negotiation. You know, they, they basically don't want to pay you. They want you for completely for free. If they can get you for free and you just give and completely give your life away, that would be the perfect negotiation for them. So somewhere you have to fall in between that works for you and that works still works for them. And even social media, you know, like big guys like Kevin, uh, Kevin Hart and these guys, they make separate deals about their social media. They're like, yeah, I'll be in the movie, but I'm not going to promote it to you because mm. their social media is bigger than the movie company's social media. Yeah. So they say, if you want me to promote your TV show or your movie that you're going to pay me to be in, you got to pay me to do that, too. And it seems unusual because wouldn't you want a project? But the movie will be to be made or bra- made or broke on the social media scale of like a Kevin Hart or somebody his caliber. So there's separate deals for these types of things. Now, that being said, you mentioned that being on TV is mentally and physically draining. Uh, making fun, mm-hmm. can we expect a, a second or third season? Honestly, it doesn't look like it's going in that direction right now. I hate to, I hate to say that, but we, uh, we're waiting to hear, and we've waited now at this point. If we didn't start making it August 1st, we're not going to make it this season and there's no schedule at the moment. So with Netflix, unfortunate exodus of subscribers, I think that put us in the, uh, that put us in the pay no mind list, I think, because the show is successful and we are getting viewers and, you know, we all get great fan mail and wonderful connections 
But uh, at the moment, we don't have a schedule for season two on Netflix. You know, that being said, I think even through watching, you've gained a bunch of fans in our house. And uh, like you said, a lot of people have gone to your social media and are probably wanting to make their own projects and through that following you and, and purchasing from you. So I hope that's the case. There are definitely upscale tick in all of our social medias, you know, and, and it, it, Pat has been really feeling it the best. Pat is the crazy Canadian. He really has, uh, you know, his, his stuff has exploded the most because he's the craziest. We all said Pat's going to be the runaway star for the show, and we all love each other, and we're all super happy for that. Going back a few years, uh, you had a show with Amy Poehler and Nick Offerman, and it was called Making It. Yep. Uh, big fan of Nick Offerman, yep. of course, and you know what? You remind me of him so much. I love it. Um, wondering if you were able to learn anything from Nick. I did. You know, Nick was a very – Nick came up learning woodworking – uh, very more traditionally, I learned kind of prop making, like making wood objects out of plywood and stuff. Nick was more of a hardwood traditional guy. And me spending time with Nick before he became Ron Swanson, I was actually working with him. I was shooting a video of him making a canoe in 2008 when he got the interview to do the audition to do Ron Swanson. And uh, obviously he went on to fame and fortune as the Ron Swanson character. But my time, all my time spent with Nick is discussing woodworking and different types of tools and different types of woods. And Nick has inspired me to be more of a traditional woodworker and less of a, you might want to say scenic carpenter, more of a real traditional woodworker, which is the main reason why I made my canoe. And currently I'm making a rowboat. If it wasn't for Nick coming into my life 12 or 13 years ago, I probably wouldn't have uh, gone down that route. And did he learn anything from you? Uh, yeah, he, he, he always jokes about me just being spontaneous and not thinking things through. And, uh, that inspires him to be less heady when it comes to approaching something. He sees me just jumping in and figuring it out. You know, like a lot of people need a full plan to see where they're going. Obviously I just talked about it with the, the producers of the show. I'm just like, okay, I'll make a, I gotta make a barbecue. Let me start working on this. And then the ideas come to me while I start working. Of course, there are moments when I'm inspired in laying in bed with a notebook in my hand and drawing ideas at my desk or whatever. But uh, most of my good ideas come to me while I'm in process. And I think Nick has been inspired by me with that. We're inspired by you too. And I'm glad I saw Making Fun and I'm glad that I was able to explore everything else that you're doing. Uh, we're out of time right now. Thank and, you so much. Uh, uh, thank you so much. Very generous with your time and, and I guess generous with your knowledge everywhere so we're gonna promote the hell out of you but in everything you do going ahead best of luck and i hope we see much more from you thank you so much thank you for your uh, interest and in reaching out and you know helping to promote the show so thank you and say hi to the kids for me and tell them i thank them as well jimmy duresta just such a cool guy uh, currently on netflix making fun and you can find him all over the place too uh, an inventor and fabricator he's an artist a, a businessman just interesting guy does a lot of really cool work and i'll post everything on on my insta and facebook and everything like that wherever you go for it i'm blake jackson thanks for being here and here's another story next guest on the autobiography podcast licensed clinical psychologist actually the first doctor we've ever had on the show so that's awesome he is Dr. Samuel West, and he is the curator of the Museum of Failure that's had exhibitions in, in Minneapolis, Washington, D.C., Paris, Shanghai, Hollywood, Los Angeles, uh, lots of cities that I can't quite pronounce. And currently it's showing 
in Calgary, Alberta. So please welcome to the show, Dr. Samuel West. Doctor, please tell us about the vehicle that moved you. We have several vehicles in the museum and some and several we have an entire sort of subsection of the of the museum called Failure in Motion, which is basically anything that moves. So what kind of vehicles are in there? Well, uh, we have obvious we, so there's some other that have to be in a museum failure. The two most iconic are the DeLorean. Okay, we gotta fire up the flux capacitor and tell you a bit about the DeLorean, which we're already learning about. So I'll just I'll just tell you this. Um, John DeLorean did so much cocaine that he could actually move faster than the vehicle that he put his name on. And then we have, of course, guess which, which is the second one. Is it the Edsel? Absolutely. You can't have a museum of failure without having a Ford Edsel. It's impossible. Um, we even, in Calgary, we, at the exhibition in Calgary, we even have a real Edsel parked outside. Oh. Hmm? My, maybe. I can't share it on this show, but my uncle gave me a, a nickname for the Edsel, and maybe you've heard it before as well. Give it to me. I'll edit it out. He calls it the car. <laughs> Because of the All grill, right, well, I'll give you the, the the story. Then the the the, the grill is is of the Ford Edsel was one of many failures. I want to back up a bit. It was one of the many innovations because Ford was no friend to innovation back then. I mean, this infamous line is um, people can have any car, any color they want as long as it's black. Yeah. Um, uh, and 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 by and large, Ford wasn't a hugely innovative company at the time. So the Ford Edsel was a huge step for uh, the Ford company. And um, and one of the 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 reasons the Ford Edsel fell are multiple, but one reason was that they took the grill, the front grill, and instead of having it horizontal, it was turned vertical. Mm-hmm. And and people in the 1950s United States, they thought they, they had a wild and dirty, perverted fantasy. And they, they thought the vertical drill, drill looked like female genitalia. So uh, nobody wanted to be in one of those cars. It's a strange When you look at it from today, you know, 2022, and even if you're the most conservative, most Puritan, Christian, whatever, you're still, still quite far-fetched to to think that a car would fail. You have to have a pretty wild fantasy to think that looks like female genitalia. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, puritanical society, anything's going to drive a person <laughs> wild, right? So, so the other reason, so do you want some other reasons why the Ford Edsel failed? Yes, please. Yeah, uh, so the, this is 1958. This is a bit complex, so usually people say, oh, it failed because of the grill. Yeah, okay, next. But, the, but it's more interesting than that. The, Ford actually uh, screwed up on two more things. Uh, one was that it, the pricing, like there were so many models available of the Ford Edsel that people were confused. Like, is it, is it a sports car? Is it a budget car? Is it a luxury car? Like, what, what is the Ford Edsel? And they couldn't wrap the... Like today, when you walk in, you buy a car, you can buy... You know, your base model, and then you have all the bells and whistles, and a car can increase quite a bit in price with all the, the options. Mm-hmm. But back then, that really wasn't the case. So um, the, the Ford was already too, it was too complex for the consumers of, 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 the, of the late 50s. Um, so that was one thing. They were, con- they were um, conflicted about the pricing. The other reason, which I think is also fascinating, and this is something that's quite, it's, it's a theme at the museum, actually, 
Ford overhyped it. They hyped it up like it, like the Ford Edsel is coming, and they would have ads with the silhouettes of of, of the Edsel, uh, like it's coming, it's it's so exciting, it's on its way, and they they were so confident that the Ford Edsel would be a success that they forced the the dealerships to um, sort of they basically forced them to pre-order a bunch of Edsels. They had a, a, a evening what do you call it, entertainment show with Frank Sinatra and some other big stars that was called the Ford Edsel Show. Like they were just totally hyping up this this car, and then when it came out, when it was launched, it was kind of like meh, meh, not that <laughs> exciting. <laughs> Which then killed the, I, everything. It just sort of you know it, it escalated, and, and the Ford Edsel is like one of the classic and most expensive uh, farriers in the museum. What was it? Was it in the end? Was it a good car despite all the hype? Since starting the Museum of Failure five years ago, I've I've, I've driven in three Ford Edsels, and I kind of I mean I'm not a car nerd, so I don't I I I can't sort of I'm not qualified to compare it with other cars of the same era, but I think they're cool. I think I I like the Ford Edsel and the fact that. It was a failure and became an icon of failure. Just makes it even more cool. As far as I'm concerned, I want a Ford Edsel. You know, there's got to be a charm to them. And, and from reading about them, I think they had a great motor. They were fairly fast and probably some innovation. Yeah. But, yeah, you're right. If they don't live up to the hype and if people are confused, um, I could see how that would create Definitely. that nasty legend. Um, so what about the other failure? <laughs> it feels bad yeah. saying, but... What about the other car in no, your collection? It's not bad. The DeLorean is a massive, was a massive failure. Do you remember what year it was? I, I don't have my notes with me. Was it? Do you, have, do you remember? Ooh, maybe. I know it was early 80s. I'm not completely early sure. Early 80s. Maybe it was 81, 82. Yeah. So the the DeLorean uh, from the designer, car uh, superstar, uh, eccentric designer, semi-celebrity uh, DeLorean himself. I mean, he named the car after himself. That's that's not egocentric at all, no. Yeah. Well, there's a there's a theme here. The Edsel was named after Ford's son, and the DeLorean's named after DeLorean. Don't name the cars after yourself. Um, <laughs> the, 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 so there were so many things wrong with the DeLorean. Basically, the car's crap. It's a crap car. <laughs> like, that's, that's the summary of it. The, the motor is so under it's a sports car with the the golf wing uh, doors it looks it looks awesome i mean it still looks awesome but you know just underpowered uh engine uh basically every nothing else worked either um but you know you expect a sports car to drive fast but that was not the case mm. <laughs> it's a delorean that was one aspect the other was that um and this one i think is quite fascinating that the uh because of of tax subsidies and, and other government handouts, the DeLorean was built in Northern Ireland Ooh. in a ship shipbuilding factory. There's another. There's a famous ship that was built in in Belfast called the Titanic. It's <laughs> also in the museum. <laughs> anyway, so the I mean, it, so that you get some Irish, uh, North, some you know, Northern Ireland, British uh, shipbuilders build a sports car they've never built a car before and that's not going to be easy and it wasn't that's why part of the reason the car is such a crappy car now was there any reason why it had like a 350 chevy that you said was underpowered maybe 170 horse was there any reason why it was so underpowered i'm sure there's reports about it i haven't when, I, when i've done the research for the museum, i haven't i haven't found any sort of 
explanations more than cost cutting. And then sort of a, a, a over a hubris that the design and the and the celebrity status of 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 DeLorean himself would sell the car anyway, which which didn't happen either because you know people were anybody who bought it was were immediately disappointed. Um, and then we have the cocaine. That's another one. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best segue I've ever heard. <laughs> I mean, you, you you can't talk about DeLorean without mentioning cocaine because uh, this was the legacy of Mr. DeLorean. He um, he loved the white powder and uh, got into this is the you know sure I mean we we think of the '80s the you know the festive '80s but I mean. DeLorean, he took it quite far. He, he got into a lot of trouble because of the coke, and um, that generated a lot of uh, negative publicity as well. Because, I mean, it's as cool and funny as we think it is in hindsight. Yeah, yeah, the dude was doing coke and got in trouble for it. it at the time, it wasn't, I mean, if you're the, the brand, you're the, the lead singer of a car brand, you, you can't get in that kind of trouble. He got in trouble with authorities. Uh, he was traveling back and forth from the States and, and Northern Ireland. Don't do coke or at least don't get caught. <laughs> <laughs> We're learning a little something. This is great. <laughs> I've actually driven in, in, in a DeLorean, like a real, a renovated DeLorean in France uh, about a month ago. Uh, we were doing an event, and the company had hired a, a DeLorean for the day, a rented one. It was It was great fun. The car is... The car, even the the super renovated, restored DeLorean, it's still a crappy car. But it looks cool. It looks really cool. You sit way down low as you should in a sports car, and it you know the engine just doesn't do anything. <laughs> it 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 it's a fun car if you're if you like to drive slow. <laughs> That's awesome. Did you hear the Johnny Carson story? Tell me. It was when the DeLorean was first released, and Johnny was a car guy. I think he was probably friends with yeah. John DeLorean. Yeah. And uh, he was on the Pacific Coast Highway, California, very hot yeah. Uh, yeah. California summer. And the car died, the battery died, and the gull wings were actually operated by an electric motor. And because the car was dead, uh. he couldn't open oh. it up. Oh, no. And it's basically like a greenhouse. So Johnny Carson just about died before the cops had to pry him out of this DeLorean. Oh, wow. I did not know about this story. Interesting. Yeah. And, and you'd think with, with a movie like um, Back to the Future, making it so yeah. famous, they would have done better. But, hey, who knows? Yeah, well, the reason it was in Back to the Future was because it was a notoriously uh, crappy car um, that could never make it up to the, the maximum speed you needed to reach you know the the, the, the time travel speed uh, and also because it does I mean it does look cool it's still still today you know uh, it, it the design is is unique it looks pretty cool uh, and anybody who sees it immediately notice that yeah that's a DeLorean and I mean that's thanks to those movies otherwise it would have been a, a parenthesis in, in automotive history. The Museum of Failure's ambition and aim is to show that we need to accept failure if we want progress. And I mean, while we're sort of kind of enjoying ourselves, kind of making fun of the, the failures of the past. Well, isn't that just perfect? Um, it's an interview with the curator of the Museum of Failure, and I have a failure. See, I set up a microphone in my basement uh, so I could do interviews here, and the first time I tried it, interviewing Dr. Samuel West, I had a failure.
but hopefully that means uh, I'm getting better and learning something. We will see. Hey, thank you for being here. I do appreciate it. Um, as long as you're here, I'm not a failure, and there'll be more episodes to come. Uh, and again, if you've got a story, I want to know. I want to know what your story is. Let me know. Um, link and share with all your friends and uh, follow if you can, and we'll see you soon. Until then, keep your wheels on the road and a tarp on your load. Yeah.